Again, we come this morning to the book of Haggai. And if you didn't get an outline, please raise your hand. Uh, there's a sheet that the ushers have they can hand you uh, this morning as we come to look at another one of the minor prophets, minor uh, primarily uh, in this case because of size, obviously because of size. Uh, and that's generally the case for the minor prophets, not because they have a minor role or because they're of less importance. As you notice there at the outset and the outline that you have, so there's a, just a brief overview. There are three post-exilic prophets uh, in the scriptures, three written prophets. And that is we have three men who, have come, who come on the scene after Israel goes back from captivity to the land of Jer to Israel and to Jerusalem. And these prophets come and speak to God's people uh, at that time rather than in captivity or before captivity as, as the other prophets in the scriptures did. And that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And we'll come to them in succession. Haggai and Zechariah spoke primarily about the, their, the spiritual and religious needs uh, centered around the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, the temple being the place where God dwelt among his people. Malachi focuses more on the speci more specifically and more fully upon the moral and social needs uh, centered on the, the people of God as a nation of God uh, and, and the need for being a holy nation. When you read Haggai and Zechariah, they're, 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 they're contemporaries, as I'll mention a little bit later, but uh, they're very different prophets. Uh, their books are very, very different. Uh, Haggai is very simple, very clear, very easy to follow. Uh, he, he simply challenges the people of God to get back to the work of building the temple. Zechariah, on the other hand, has some of the most difficult uh, imagery to work through in the entire Old Testament. As a matter of fact, many years ago when I taught through Zechariah uh, in this adult class, uh, <clears throat> the only thing I could get all of the commentators to agree on was that fact, uh, is that they were some of the most complicated and challenging images and visions to work through. Well, there's the, the overview of where we are, but by way of introduction, as we've done in the past, looking uh, at the uh, the book itself, we have, first of all, the author. Who wrote the book of Haggai? Well, it's very plain throughout the book. He mentions his name several times, but it's right there in the first verse of the first chapter. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest saying. And so there we have Haggai. Haggai's name is uh, related to the Hebrew word for feast or festival. And so therefore, either he's supposed to be pointing them in that direction or was very likely born during one of the feasts. Uh, and that was the name that he was given. He is the first prophet to come on the scene after the restoration of the people to the land. And he makes a very strong and frequent statement that he is a prophet of the Lord. So in, in chapter 1, verse 1, and in verse 3, and in verse 12, again in chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 10, we have this description, Haggai the prophet. And then um, in chapter 1 and verse 13, we have this uh, very thorough and more uh, full statement uh, which is the only comment that we have with regard to his calling to the ministry in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, 
spoke by the commissioned message of Yahweh to the people, saying. He was commissioned by Yahweh himself. Now, if you go through the book, again, there's, uh, you, have all, you have all kinds of people who, who try to pick apart the Old Testament and even the book of Haggai, which is only two chapters. They try to find different people who wrote different parts. But you, you read the book, the message, the style, uh, the, the time frame that is described, the important historical references, everything that's made, uh, everything that's made in the book uh, makes it very clear that this is the same man. The historical reference there is, in, is to Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14, and we will go back there later to, 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 to read about how he was one of the prophets sent by God to help the people. One of the things that stands out on the, on, about Haggai is he performs, there's no recorded performance of any miracle. There's no dreams, there's no visions, it's just he receives a word from the Lord, we don't know how he received it. Uh, but the thing that stands out in, in Haggai is that Haggai was a preacher. He's very concerned in this very short book that his hearers and his readers uh, understand that his message is not his own. It is God's word. It is Yahweh's word. Five times he speaks of the word of Yahweh. Eight times he says something on behalf of Yahweh or Yahweh of hosts. Twelve times it speaks of Yahweh declaring or Yahweh of hosts declaring something. So 25 different times in this small book we have uh, Yahweh speaking. And then it's as though uh, that's not enough because when uh, Haggai writes his book, he says that uh, for instance, chapter 2, verse 1, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, saying, and he put, keeps using this word saying, God was saying something to him, or he was to say something to somebody else. And so we have, again, another eight times in which he speaks, he uses this word saying. And then you can add two more times where God actually commands him to speak. So you kind of get the impression this man is really concerned that those who re hear him and read him understand this is not my word. This is no pet peeve by some particular prophet who, who has a, a burr in his sandal. This is, this is actually the words of God himself to God's people. And it's, it, it carries a, a significant amount of weight. I am God's spokesman. Haggai. I say again, was a preacher. So the setting then of Haggai, uh, when was Haggai written? Well, it's very interesting as you look through the book, you'll, if you look at with me, there's, there's dates on every one of his messages, right? So chapter one, verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month. Then in verse 15, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Verse 1 of chapter 2. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai the prophet, saying. And then again in chapter 2 and verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai 
And then finally, chapter 2 and verse 20. Then the word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying. And so everything is very precisely timed. It's one of the most precisely dated messages or books in the entire Old Testament. The four messages are delivered all in the second year of the Persian king Darius, the first, around 520 B.C., and the Persians have now overtaken the Babylonians who took Judah into captivity, and so they've come into power. All four messages are dated by month and by day. All four messages are given within a four-month period, literally really, three months and 24 days. From the first day of the sixth month, in chapter 1, verse 1, to the 24th day of the ninth month, chapter 2, and verse 18. As I mentioned, he's a contemporary of Zechariah. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. Keep your marker there in Haggai, but turn with me to the book of Ezra, where we read uh, about these two men coming on the scene. Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1. This is during the time of Zerubbabel, leading the people back and getting them established and beginning the building of the uh, temple. Chapter 5 and verse 1, And the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel. You look down at verse 14 of chapter 6, we see this mention, them, him, them mentioned together again. And the elders of the Jews were building and succeeding through the prophesying. And notice that, again, Haggai is always Haggai the prophet. And here again, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. So this, these two men were ministering at the same time, sent by God for the same mission in order to bring a message to the people of God in the, the work of building the temple. In Zechariah chapter 1, we'll, we'll look that, uh, Lord willing, someday in the future, chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 7, we read that his ministry also came in the second year of King Darius. Now, we don't know exactly when these things were written down. Uh, they may have been written by uh, Haggai immediately after he uh, pr pronounced them. It may have been a track that was put together. Uh, it reads kind of like um, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Right? If you've ever read the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle, it seems like it's a very coherent book, and it is, and as though it were written one chapter after the other by Ryle, but it actually wasn't. It was several sermons that were put together. The first eight sermons were together, and then somebody else decided, well, let's put these other sermons that he preached uh, after that and make a book out of it. And so they were collected over time, collected by somebody else. And it may have been that that's what Haggai was. But his sermons certainly read together. The timing all goes together. Uh, but it's, it's a matter of we don't know exactly when he wrote it down, for whom it was written down. All we know is that God kept it for us in his scriptures. Again, it's written after the time where Cyrus, uh, the king of uh, the king had, had given the king of Persia had given a decree that the people of Israel should be able to go back. We read of that in Ezra one. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it for you. That Cyrus, king of Persia. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of of Yahweh, the God of Israel. For he is a God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, whatever place he may live, let that man and that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus, actually, from my understanding of history, actually did this for many different nations. This was one of his ways of ruling over his whole kingdom. He would send back a certain people to their land and build a temple uh, to their God on his behalf. And this was how he chose to rule his kingdom. Rather than just send uh, military forces in every, asp- every corner of the kingdom, and like the Romans did, he did it in this particular way. And so he has this decree, and Darius, following on after him, uh, continues to allow that decree to go forth. So they begin building in around 536, but their building stopped. We read of that, and again, in Ezra, where they were sent to build, and the builders laid the foundation, and the priests rejoiced in what was built. But we read in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 24, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that's about 16 years of uh, just laying idle after they had begun the building. So there's the setting. People have come back. Haggai and Zechariah brought on the scene when the people have stopped working in order to be God's messengers to the people to get them back on track and doing the work they'd been called to do. So that brings us then to the audience. To whom did Haggai write or to whom did he speak? Well, he certainly spoke to the leadership. We see that again and again, especially in verse 1. Uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest. So he's speaking to the, to the governor, the civil leader, and to the religious leader, but also to the people. He spoke to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, we read in Ezra 5. In in the book of Haggai, in chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, and verse 2, 2, if you just look at chapter 2 and verse 2, you see him speaking specifically and directly to the remnant of the people, the people whom God had preserved and had brought back. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... And so he's speaking to the people. Now it's a remnant. There's only approximately just under 50,000 people who returned, which is really a rather small amount of people that came back uh, from captivity in Babylon. Why so few? Well, uh, one uh, introduction put it this way, and I thought it was very helpful. Who would not want to go home after a period of captivity? The exiles had seemingly had followed the advice of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, marry, and have sons and daughters. And they had prospered as Babylon has prospered. Again, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. Now, almost 50 years had passed since the destruction of Jerusalem. The generation born during the exile only knew Babylon as home. So rather than joining a mass return to Jerusalem, 
most of those in Babylon seemingly chose to keep the financial security and comfort they had built during the exile. And so a vast number and a large number decided, well, we're just going to stay here. What, for whatever reason, we're not told exactly, but maybe they just felt comfortable. You know, they'd, they'd lived there most of their life. They'd been born there and they'd, they'd grown up there. This was the culture that they knew. They'd prayed for, for Jerusalem if they'd followed Jeremiah's, or not Jerusalem. They'd prayed for, for, for their, the cities they were in there in Persia. And so they would have thought, well, this is comfortable. And so maybe they stayed behind. But then we have to ask, why stop the work? Well, these people come back after the land has been pretty much completely idle for 70 years. And it was an agrarian society, that is, a farm society. There was a lot of hard work to try to get the land back where it's usable. So maybe it was just because it was a lot of hard work. You remember, if you, if you recall, some of them, uh, there was a small group of the poorest of people, the lowest class of people that were left behind after all the captivities took place. And they would have taken over the best properties. They would have taken over the best houses. They would have moved in wherever they could. And that's where they would have now resided. Now they come back and the people say, wait, this is my house. Well, how do you resolve that? And so there were probably tensions that arose during that time. The rebuilding of the temple was, uh, was a daunting task and, and certainly didn't seem to live up to its expectations. The city needed to be rebuilt. There was uh, internal tensions and struggles, and there was also external uh, opposition uh, from those who were in the land that would have made all of this more and more difficult. So one man summarized all that by saying this, with these and other issues pressing, it is no surprise that the returnees felt comparatively little urgency about rebuilding the temple, but instead poured their energies into reconstructing their homes and restoring their agricultural production. Seventy years you've been out of this house. What would your house look like? I was just gone for ten days and I came home to a, a jungle of a yard. Right now, just imagine, it's a farm. It's not just a, a nice yard. It's a farm and it's just gone untouched or barely touched and your house has now started to fall apart and you come back and you've got well they're saying well wait a minute i haven't got time for the temple i got to get myself established here and get myself uh, recognized i and and there was we're going to see there was a lot of difficulties they faced not just from opposition but there was uh, they weren't getting the rains they thought they were going to get it was drought and there was blight and and so i'm going to have to work harder on my farm i haven't got time to work in the temple. So that brings me then to the purposes for why Haggai spoke and why this book was written. The primary historical purpose of, this, of these messages is to motivate the returned remnant to complete the temple in Jerusalem. The work had ceased, we read in chapter 4, verse 24, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And what happened in the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia? Haggai and Zechariah started preaching. It goes right on in chapter 5 of Ezra, say, When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. 
So what happened? They got preachers. God sent them preachers. He didn't send them masons. He didn't send them carpenters. Didn't send them educators. He sent them preachers. Preachers to say, listen, there's a work that you're supposed to be doing. There's a work that needs to be done. The temple needs to be rebuilt. This is central to the worship of Jehovah, of Yahweh in Israel. Without the temple, there is no place to worship him, according to the old covenant religion. And so these two men came to motivate them, one with his simple, direct the preaching, the other, Zechariah, with all of his visionary uh, pictures that he draws. And if nothing else, and I'll say it again when I get to Zechariah, there's no one particular style of preaching that is the particular style. And we should be able to benefit from all of the different ones that, that we hear, uh, whether it's a, a Haggai who's simple, clear, and plain, or a Zechariah who comes with all kinds of pictures to grab your mind. And as the, Pastor Martin used to tell us, the Arabic uh, proverb to turn your eyes into ears, turn your ears into eyes, so that you could, what you were hearing, you could see in your mind's eye. So that's the historical purpose, just to show that this was what they needed to do, get back to the work. The doctrinal and ethical purposes, there are a number of them. Uh, we learn from this, from this particular book that God often frustrates his people's plans when they ignore him. And he does it in many different ways. He brings a drought. He causes them to, to make money and put it in bags with holes in it that just falls straight through. Uh, he, God blesses also, God blesses his people when they put him first. That's, we see that as he comes back. He says, when they start obeying, he says, this is the path of blessing. Jesus' words echo that, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. That doesn't mean that it's a, you know, we earn something from God, but it's a, a path of blessing. If God's going to bless you, it's going to generally be in the path of obedience to his word. When we are in God's service, we should, grow, we should not grow weary in well-doing. They grew, they grew weary. They were distracted. They were disrupted. They ceased. We should not grow weary in well-doing, as Galatians 6 says. And God's promise for tomorrow is our hope for today. We oftentimes want our hope to be born out of the fact that there's something God's doing right now for me. But oftentimes what we need for motivation and we need for hope to motivate us is a promise of what he's going to do in the future. And that's what he tells the people here many times. He's going to give them promises for what he's going to do in the future. Tokens that he's going to do now, there might be blessings along the way, but he's got greater blessings and greater purposes that he's yet going to do. And that should be enough to motivate us to continue to serve him. God's promised presence should drive out carnal fear and motivate, motivate us to persevere. Isn't that what he said to Joshua? I can't imagine what Joshua went through. God's got to remind him, Moses is dead. I know that, God. You're his second. You're coming behind him. What? Me? I'm just Moses' servant. I just wash Moses' hands. Me? I'm going to lead these people like Moses? I've got to fill his shoes? And God says, listen, I've made many promises to my people. I keep all my promises. And I will be with you. You won't be alone. Keep this word in your heart. Obey it and you will prosper. I will go with you. And so the promises of his presence is something which should motivate us. And again, isn't that promise that is given to us? In all of the works that we have to do, lo, I am with you always, even to the end 
of the age. So those are some of the doctrinal things we can learn in ethical purposes. And then the Christological purposes. The main Christological purpose, or main Christological passage, is, is found uh, in that speaking of the desire of all the nations shall come. And I believe it's in chapter 2. Uh, we'll get to it when we come through the, through the text. But the desire of the nations is uh, a passage which has to be, can be understood in many different ways, but it certainly is a reference to Christ's first coming, the spread of the gospel, the establishment of the church, and I could say even includes his second coming. So when he speaks of the desire of all the nations, he's saying this is, this is what we're going to see when Christ comes upon the scene and does his gospel work leading to his consummation. It's the promise then of the coming, the, the, the passage ends with a promise for the, for the Davidic king to be reestablished. Notice with me right at the end, verse 23 of chapter 2. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Yahweh, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. This language of him being uh, chosen is uh, similar to language used of David in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, and language used of, I believe it was Jeconiah, when he says, I'm going to take the, you off like a signet ring. You're no longer going to have that place of rule. And here now it's going to be restored. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was one of the uh, descendants from David, and he appears in both Mary's and in Joseph's uh, line of, of, of lineage. Uh, and so, so he is the line of the coming Messiah. And so that's the, the picture right at the end. The coming Messiah, he's going to come. This promise may look like it's lost because we're in captivity, but it's not. Again, I'll just read a man who summarized a lot of this in one very helpful paragraph. A new era had been inaugurated with the decree of Cyrus. The reconstruction of the temple and the administration of the Davidic prince Zerubbabel. But it was only a provisional step anticipatory of events yet to come. The visible presence of God would finally appear at the second temple when Jesus tabernacled in our midst and we beheld his glory, John 1.14. For he was the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1.3. The wealth of the nations comes to Jerusalem in the gifts of the Gentile woman, Gentile, excuse me, Gentile wise men, Matthew 2, 1 to 12. And in a new temple made of living stones, Jew and Gentile alike, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2. A new kingdom, one not of this world, one that transcends and rules all others, is introduced by another son of David. He rules now and is putting all things under his feet. So you see all of these things kind of hinted at here in the book of, of Haggai. Uh, as, we, as we make our way through, I hope that will become more clear. But these things fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, the advancement of the church, and then of ultimately the second coming. Real simple then, if you notice right at the bottom there, uh, the, 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 the book is structured with four sermons. Some say five, but I think the first two actually go together. The first two time references. Four sermons. 
But these sermons are not just Haggai's sermons. They are the, the words of Yahweh in the words of his servant. But we have, first of all, in chapter 1, the first sermon, Yahweh's word of reproof regarding the neglect of temple construction. And in chapter 2, we have three other sermons. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Yahweh's word of reinforcement to encourage temple construction. Verses 10 to 19, Yahweh's word of realignment concerning the effect of temple construction. Verses 10 to 19. And then finally, Yahweh's word of reassurance regarding ultimate victory. Verses 20 to 23. So let's look now at these four sermons and make our way through this book. So sermon number one. Sermon number one, Yahweh's word of reproof regarding the neglect of temple construction. Again, we have the time reference I've already mentioned. That's there in verse 1. We have the speaker mentioned in verses 1 and 3, Haggai the prophet. And the audience is Zerubbabel and Joshua, the civil and spiritual leaders of the people of God, having returned. And the first point in this sermon is found in verses 1 to 4, Yahweh exposes their hearts. Yahweh exposes their hearts. And notice with me as I read verses 1 to 4. We'll start with verse 2 because this is, we've already read verse 1 twice. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. Then the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies waste? And so we see the first thing, the searching word of God, he really wants to emphasize, I've already made this point, but he really wants to emphasize the fact that Yahweh is speaking through his prophet. Yahweh of hosts is speaking. So this is a searching word coming from God. And in verse 2, he exposes their excuses. God knows your excuses. He tells them what what they've been saying. Here's their excuse. It's not the right time. And maybe it was something like this. It's not the right time. It's not an advantageous time. Conditions are not precisely right. We are too busy. We'll get to it after we finish these other things in our lives. It's too dangerous. There's too much opposition. Providence precludes our efforts. We are too weak. There's not enough of us to do all the work. We are too limited. God deserves better than we can do right now. These are the kinds of things, if you want to spin out that it's not the right time, the kinds of things that you and I raise up in our hearts, isn't it? When it comes to doing the work of God. So many excuses. There's so many other things to do. In essence, they were saying that their present circumstances warranted their putting off the obedience to God. Such thoughts, Kyle and Delich say, as these would have necessity greatly detracted from the pleasure in the building. And as soon as outward difficulties were also placed in their way, would supply food to the doubt whether the time for carrying on this work was right. Thus, the zeal for the building of the house of God so cooled down that they gave it up altogether. And they gave themselves building their houses where they could have a place to live and paneled houses where they could have a comfortable place to live. 
This attitude would more quickly have arisen in anybody's heart who didn't go back for the right purposes. If you weren't truly believing in God, it's kind of like the, the pilgrims. You had the pilgrims and the stranger, right? strangers that came over on the Mayflower, some to establish a, a new community where they could worship God, and others that came because, well, hey, new business opportunities. And some of the people that came back may have had that perspective. They came back not for the true heart out of honoring God. So Yahweh exposes their excuses. Yahweh uncovers their sin. If you, if you read through the book of, of Haggai on your own, you'll find that in each, almost each, in every section except the last, God exposes his point and, and the people with questions. So verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that is God's house, lies desolate? What's he doing? He's challenging their priorities. What are your priorities? Is it really most important that you have paneled houses? rather than establishing a place for me to worship, to be worshipped, and all that is necessary for me to dwell among this people and for you to draw near to me? You see, Yahweh uncovers their sin through the preaching of, of Haggai. They had misplaced priorities. They were worldly, had worldly concerns that were taking priority over spiritual duties. Well, brethren, I think I, I could, and I did actually years ago, stop here and just make some very significant applications. You know, God's word, even the preached word, is a searchlight which comes to search us out. And in the midst of wanting encouragement, remember the Haggai was sent to encourage the people to get back to work. And so what does he do? By the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he comes and the first thing he does is he exposes their sin of wrong priorities. It exposes their sin of worldliness. And he highlights that. What? That's going to discourage them. You're going to add more discouragement. Well, then you've got a conflict with God because that's the way God wanted to encourage his people. And the word of God comes that way. The word is like a sword that divides even soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The word is like a fire and a hammer. This is what biblical preaching oftentimes looks like. Yahweh exposes their hearts. But then Yahweh prescribes a remedy. Yahweh prescribes a remedy in verses 5 through 11. And in there, you'll see in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8, a call for reflection, for serious reflection. Yahweh calls them to serious reflection. Consider your ways. Set your heart upon your ways. That is, take a look at really what's taking place in your life and accurately and critically evaluate what's happening. You had this plan. You build your house first and everything will go better for you. You get everything over here in your world all set up and then there will be time for God later. And he says, how's that plan working out for you? Well, I'll tell you how it's working out for you. God says, I blow on what you're doing. I called for a drought in the land, the mountains, the grain, the wine, the oil, the ground produces on men and cattle and all your labors of your hands. How's that been working out for you? Well, not too well, actually, the people of Israel would have had to say. Because God's trying to get their attention and say, no, that's not going to work. You got your priorities mixed up. Consider your ways. Consider the circumstances, the difficulties, and the chastisements that you've received from God. And ultimately, God highlights their covenant deflection because this drought that is brought and spoken of in verse 11 is the kind of thing that was described in the, the judgments that God would bring upon his people if they turned away from him. 
He's highlighting their covenant unfaithfulness. And then in verse 8, he calls them to covenant faithfulness. Go up to the mountains, bring the wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. Their sinful distraction is directly confronted by God, and he says, get back to work. He calls them to covenant faithfulness, to fulfill their duty. But notice how he does it. God puts in some very encouraging words right at the end of verse 8. That I may be pleased with it and be glorified. Your work done according to my commandment will bring a smile to my face and will bring honor to my name. Brethren, again, this is a challenge to all of us because worldliness is always encroaching. It's always pressing on us. And it's not always in the the overt ways that we're going to act like the wicked world all around us and just get thrown off. It's in the simple ways. It's in little ways that it comes, because when lawlessness increases, the love of the many will grow cold. Well, I've got to pay my bills, right? So I have to work on the Lord's Day because I need one more paycheck. Oh, really? So we'll set aside God's law. We'll set aside God's duties. Well, you know, I'll get to my devotions maybe on Saturday, but I'm really too busy all day week. I can't have time to pray. I don't have time. Martin Luther put it this way. I have so much to do today, I have to pray longer. Because <laughs> I need God's help with all that I have to do. We do make time for what we deem important. You will. And they did. They made time for their houses and neglected God. Again, I come back to Matthew six thirty-three: Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I know that some of you are very busy, very busy, mothers with babies and, you know, it's just not the, well, I understand that. But even that, why are you doing that? Is it being done to the glory of God? I've got homework like you can't believe. Okay, are you doing that to the glory of God and not using it as an excuse to neglect other biblical duties? What is my first concern, brethren? What is your first concern? What is your heart set upon? Where are you spending your time and your labors? The third point in this sermon is verses 12 to 15, in which Yahweh strengthens his people. And this is really a a, a picture of what every preacher wants to hear uh, after he preaches. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed, that is, they hearkened unto, they heard with a determination to obey the voice of Yahweh their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for Yahweh. That is, they feared God. Their hearts were struck. They were determined to obey, and they humbled themselves before God, and they feared him. He goes on, he says, Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke by the commission of Yahweh to the people, saying, I am with you, declares Yahweh. Here's an encouragement right along the way. See, they're fearing God, and so he comes and says, I'm with you. And so Yahweh stirred up by the 
excuse me. So, the, so Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. The first day of the sixth month, he's preaching. He probably kept preaching. And maybe he's like that young preacher who, who wanted to make sure the congregation got what he was saying. So he just kept preaching the same message every week until they got that one down. And then he'd move on. Maybe Haggai just keeps hammering this and say, listen, brethren, there's, there's more worldliness. We got to deal with this. We got to keep going. Look, look at where you've been. Look at what God's been doing. He's been chastising you. Learn from that. Let's move on. Let's get back to work. But by the 24th day, three weeks later, they're working. Oh, every preacher loves that. See the hearts, hear of the hearts that are being changed and then the, the lives that change because of it. Never, ever think that the preaching of God is just an intellectual practice. I wrestle with this. My goal, it should always be to see change in me and in you. That's what we want. That's what he saw. An amazing picture there is Yahweh stirs them up to go back to the work. Well, that brings us to the second message, and I'll be quicker on these others. Yahweh's word of reinforcement to encourage temple construction. Now we get to what many people would think is, is really the more encouraging part of it, right? Now Yahweh is going to give them some strong encouragement. Chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, he's going to speak to Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. And here's his question, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? He picks up on something that's recorded in the book of Ezra, in which Ezra, uh, they, they built the, the foundation for the, for the temple, and the people so rejoiced that the sound was heard in, in distant lands, different, distant, distant parts. Carried that sound carried, but among them there was also the older priests who had and older people who had seen Solomon's temple, and this didn't look anything like Solomon's temple. This was so small, and it says they wept. They wept, and so he's addressing those people. He's saying, "Remember that what the glory of that was like? It's gonna be better. It may not look like it now." But this is just a token of what God is going to do in the future. It's going to have more glory. It's going to have all of the nations coming in. And so he gives this solemn and certainty of his message. Again, it's the word of Yahweh. It's God who is speaking. Haggai the prophet is the one who's bringing it. He's addressing a matter of discouragement of, among God's people because of this uh, seeing of the, of the temple and thinking this is way too small. And so he gives just straightforward application. He gives his application right up front. Verse 4. Take courage. Take courage. Take courage and work. Verse 5. Don't fear. There it is. He said, I'm going I'm to start off with my application. Maybe I'll do that next time I preach. I'll just start with the application and then I'll go back and tell you what, what, where, what I base it on. He, just, he says, listen. Are you feeling this way? I, you need to change. Take courage. But then he goes on to tell them why they should take courage. He reinforces this with the promise of God's presence, verses 4 and 5. 
and promised provision. And here's where the desire of all the the nations comes in in verses 7 through 9. I will shake all the nations... Well, at verse, verse 6, he says, I'm going to shake heaven and earth, the sea and all the dry land. The creator is going to say, all of creation is at my disposal. And I'm going to shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill up this house with glory. And you say, well, that's not what my Bible says. It says the desire of all nations. And it's a capital D. It's talking about Jesus. Well, it could be talking about Jesus. It could also be talking about the fact that he's going to build his church through this one who's going to come and gather in all of the nations through a shaking of everything. And I think that's what Hebrews 12 emphasizes. I can't go into it. I've got page after page when I went through this before, looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Brethren, we have received a a kingdom that will not be shaken. But he has shaken all things In the coming of Christ, in the gospel going forth, it turned the world upside down. But the thing that stood out to me is that he bring the gold and the silver. God's not getting the leftovers from the nation and saying, oh, well, I shook them all and all the good ones were gone. This little one fell through and okay, I'll take him. In some sense, we're nobodies, right? We're the fivefold nobodies of Paul's teaching. But in another sense, we're the gold and silver in God's eyes. He has selected and chosen and sifted the nations to bring in his children, the best, if you will, to build his temple. And while the glory of God came to Herod's temple when Christ walked into the temple, far more the glory of God is seen in the temple as he builds this nation, Gentile and Jew, the spirit dwelling within them, This is his new temple. And so it's a temple that's a glorious temple. And even that's just speaking of something else, right? Because in Revelation chapter 21, we read of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it's marked by what? The glory of God. That's what we're going to finally become. Perfectly glorified in the consummation when Christ returns. So his promised... uh, provision, and his promised peace. Again, pointing to Christ, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. Again, pointing to that fact, I believe he's talking about the church. What great encouragements to the work, to gospel work, to persevere. God is at work. He's going to shake the whole nation. The whole world, all nations, draw out his elect. That brings us to the next message in in verses 10 through 19. And this is by far for me the hardest one to really grasp because it's a little bit different. So we've seen Yahweh's searching expose, his first sermon in in chapter 1. We've seen his second sermon, Yahweh's strong encouragements. And now Yahweh's sober warning. Yahweh's sober warning. And know how he puts it. He, he puts a question to the priests. Two questions, really. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his, this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? No, the priests know better. No, you don't, can't touch something with a holiness and, and, and that'll make it holy. He says, but well, what if, what if uh, uh, an unclean corpse touches any one of these? Will the latter become unclean? Yes. As a, as a friend of mine years ago said, sickness is contagious. 
Health is not. We can pass on contamination. We can't pass on holiness. You can't just touch somebody. I'll make you holy. His point is this. He's saying, you know, doing this work of building the temple doesn't make you holy just because you're engaged in a holy work. And he's really coming back to what some of the previous prophets had emphasized. Jeremiah, for instance, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is among us. And they thought, well, we're set apart because we got the temple. He's saying, wait a minute, just because you're engaged in holy work doesn't make you holy. If you're defiled in heart and going about this work for some other reason than the glory of God and the way God has purposed for it to be done, then you're defiling the very thing that you think is God's. You're not doing him a favor. He wants them to consider where they've been and how God has chastised them. And so this, these two provocative questions that he asks are meant to get them to stop and see that they need to be a holy people engaged in a holy work, not just a people that will be holy because they do the work. That should be an expression. So in other words, beware of formalism. Beware of just going about the work and thinking that's good enough. And then Yahweh's prescribed response he tells them to consider what Yahweh has done in the past. Remember, he chastised you before when you went about this formalistic approach to things, when you didn't consider his holiness. And consider Yahweh's potential blessing. He has the potential to bless. And Alec Matir, in looking at, at verse 19, he made recommendation in a couple other commentaries that verse 19 where it says, Is the seed still in the barn? even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree. It is not born yet. From this day on, I will bless you. He says that this is just language that describes what's yet to come. So in the past, he judged them in these very ways. I smote every you and, and every work of your hands, verse 17. But he says, now I want to consider from this day onward... And he says it again, from the 24th of the ninth month, from the day of when the temple of Yahweh was founded, consider, though you can't see it yet, it hasn't borne fruit yet, it's there. You'll be blessed for serving God. Well, then we come to the final section, the final sermon. Yahweh's word of reassurance regarding ultimate victory. And here's where we come. Let me just read these verses because they're just really wonderful verses. Verse 20. Then the word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares Yahweh, and I will make you like a signet ring, and for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh promise is universal victory in verses 21 and 22. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, and he's going to overthrow the, the thrones of every other kingdom. He's going to destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. He's going to defeat all their armies. 
and he's going to usher in his king. He's going to usher in the promised king. And here's the ring. Here's the token. See that Zerubbabel there? You thought David's line was gone. You thought the kingship was over. No, no, look. Look at Zerubbabel. He's my signet ring. I will keep my promise. Remember, the signet ring is one of the things that David used to stamp something and say, this is from the king. He says, this is it. He's the one. He's a picture to you that I will keep my promise. David yet has a son who will sit on the throne. Now, the people might have thought that Zerubbabel was him. Right? That happens lots of times. <laughs> but he's a picture of what, the one that is yet to come. And so, as we come to the end of this, this book, let me just give you a, a few final applications. Some of them I've said, I'll just reiterate. And if I can find the right page in all my notes, there it is. Let's learn from the book of Haggai what biblical preaching looks like. Biblical preaching is searching. It, it calls you to examine yourself, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It will hopefully show you the folly of your sinful priorities. It will point you to the work that you're supposed to be engaged in. It will press you to do the work that God has called you to do. It will set before you the encouragements of God, in the very character of God, in the promises of God. It will set before you these motivations that there's yet more glory to, to come. And press on with the work, however difficult, however discouraging, however disappointing, however opposed you are, there is yet glory to come. God will fulfill His promise. His son is sitting on his throne. He will come again. God will throw off all of these enemies to his people. He will not be thwarted in his purpose to uh, establish a world in which righteousness dwells. Biblical preaching will remind them, remind you of the obedience, that obedience is the path of blessing, and that uncleanness Will, will taint any religious activity that you bring. We need to, in, in our preaching, rehearse the promises of God and assure the people of God of His presence. But then, what's the proper response to preaching? Well, we all know Acts 17.11, right? Now, these were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, for they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So, yep, that's me. I pick up my Bible and I check every word the preacher preaches because I don't believe him. Now, I know you don't do that. But the fact is, you should check the script. But there's more, you see. And that's what we learn from Haggai. It's more than just saying, okay, I want to know. It's not just, I want to know. It's, I want to live. I want to apply these things to my life. I'm going to take it further even than the preacher told me. He missed me, but the arrow was close enough that I picked it up and I stuck it in myself. I want to obey. They changed. They went back to the work. May God use his word to change us. We also have a picture of true religion. True religion is lived out in the fear of God. 
It says that they feared God and they worked. May God help us to grow in our fear of him, the one who can shake heaven and earth and will shake heaven and earth on our behalf if we are his. May God help us not to become discouraged, but to keep pressing on for the glory of our King, that he may be pleased and be glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Haggai and the pictures and the message that he gives us. Write it upon our hearts. Be merciful, O God, to draw near to us as the word is preached in this next hour, even as we hear the scriptures being read, even as we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, would you draw near to us and minister to us? Would you stir us up in our spirits by your spirit to do the work you're calling us to do? For the glory of King Jesus, for your glory, we pray in his name. Amen.